Maybe you're here this morning and you already know Christ. And I ask that you would pray that He would renew your faith, renew your vigor to serve and to know Him, to make Him known. Maybe you're here this morning and you're seeking. You're wanting to know truth. You're wanting and checking out the claims of Christ. And you're seeking this day. Then I invite you to have God speak to you and to respond when you hear His voice. And maybe you're here this morning and you're simply a doubter. You're skeptical of the claims of Christ, of church, of all these things. But you're here. I ask that you invite God simply to speak to you and to open the eyes of your heart to reveal His truth and His factual nature to you. Lord, we celebrate the hope and the power of Your resurrection. That You came and You dwelt here on earth and lived as man, yet perfect. You were scourged, beaten, whipped, and then had nails driven through your hands and your feet, hung upon a cross, and died. But three days later, you rose. And Lord, it's because you are the risen and resurrected Savior that we are here today to celebrate this most glorious time we call Easter, Resurrection Sunday. God, I pray, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears that hear, so that we might experience the resurrection and be fully alive, alive in Christ Jesus, dead to our sins, but alive in you. So, Lord, we celebrate you and we pray that you would draw those who do not know you, those who doubt, those who are seeking to know you this resurrected Sunday so that they might be alive. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Resurrection words of life. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Resurrection words of life. We see words of life given to us by Jesus, given to the disciples by Christ the Savior here in John chapter 20. As I stated earlier, as we pray, there are three types of people. There are believers, there are seekers, and there are doubters. Which one are you? Uh, there is a card in your bulletin this morning. And if you would pull that out and just look at it for a moment. And if you take a moment to fill out your name, I'd, I'd appreciate it. And any other information you give us. But I'd like you to just look at those choices. And at the end of this service, I will invite you to check one of those boxes as you look and as you consider the claims of Christ, the claims of the resurrection. I was reading an article earlier, uh, and it quotes Dr. Richard Swinburne, and it says this, Economists use the probability theory to predict how people will spend money. Actuaries are used to figure out when someone will likely die for the life insurance companies. Richard Swinburne, who is a professor of philosophy at Oxford University, used a formula known as Bayes' theorem to calculate the probability of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Dr. Swinburne 
spoke to an audience of more than 100 philosophers that convened at Yale University uh, in April for a conference on ethics and belief. Dr. Swinburne, who is an imposing figure with white hair, uh, evaluated the evidence for and against the resurrection. He assigned values to factors like the probability that God exists, the nature of Jesus' behavior while he was alive, and the quality of wit the witness of testimonies after his death. He plugged them all into a dense thicket of letters, symbols, and did the math. Given if E and K and H are true, and if only C is true, and so on and so forth, he came out with a probability that there is a 97% chance that the resurrection is true. A philosopher at Oxford does the math, does the system, and finds that there's a 97% chance of the accuracy of the physical and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, we who call ourselves believers certainly believe in 100% true because it is the act that defines us as believers. It's one of the tenets that you cannot say, I simply don't think so. It is because Jesus conquered death that we worship Him, that we celebrate Him, that we believe that He is God in the flesh. You know, it's interesting because there were many, even at that time, who were skeptical, who doubted. Many who had come to the place where they were seeking, but they weren't sure. And it's interesting if you take Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 33, Jesus actually predicts what will occur. He tells His disciples how things will occur. It reminds me of the story of the old football coach, the old college football coach, who um, was in a tight game and his quarterback got hurt while they're on the two-yard line. And he's got 98 yards to go. And his second-string quarterback had come down with a flu and was sick and didn't even dress. So all he has is a third-string quarterback who's a freshman who's never played a snap in college football and had been simply used as the punter. So here they are in this tight game. They're on the two-yard line, and he tells his freshman quarterback to go in. It's second down. He said, son, here's what I want you to do. I want you on the first play, I want you to hand the ball to Kowalski, who's our fullback, and just have him run up the middle. And on the next play, I want you to hand it to him again and just try to get us a few yards so that you have room to punt. And then on the third play, I simply want you to punt the ball. You got that? Now repeat it back to me. I hand it off to the fullback the first play, I hand it off to the ball, fullback the second play, and then I punt. That's not right. I want you to do exactly what I told you. Now get out there. So the first play... The, the, the freshman quarterback takes the ball. He hands it off to the fullback, Kowalski. He runs up the middle all the way to the 50-yard line. 48-yard gain. Crowds go crazy. Next play, he hands it to Kowalski, and Kowalski runs all the way down to the 3-yard line. So, hell, we're all on the fourth down. Quarterback goes back. He gets the ball. He punts it from the 3-yard line. And everybody goes crazy. The players are going, what was going on? The coach runs out, runs out, and he grabs him, and he goes, Son, what were you thinking? What were you thinking on that play to punt the ball from our own three-yard line, from the, the opposing team's three-yard line? We only had three more yards to go. What, are, what in the world was going on in your head? I, he said, and the quarterback said, I was thinking, what a dumb coach I have to be punting the ball right now. 
And, you know, so many people look at Christianity and think, man, you just believe anything. What kind of facts, what kind of evidence do you have? Well, Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 33, Jesus took the twelve apostles aside and told them, hey, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And he, we will be, or excuse me, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knew what was going to occur, and he had already told his disciples, but they didn't quite get it at that point. In chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, beginning with verse 1, early on that first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, whom is John, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and ran to the tomb first. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. And he saw and believed. He saw and believed what? Well, I believe he remembered the words of Jesus. He believed. But he didn't fully understand. He, matter of fact, we see a parenthetical statement here by him in, in verse 9. They did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They didn't understand from the Old Testament Scriptures they had. Now, there were two different passages that predicted the resurrection that spoke uh, of that we can go back and see now. Isaiah 53, verse 10 and 11, and Psalm 16, 10, which says, uh, You will not abandon me into the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. But they did not connect them. They did not understand them at this point. And then in verse 10, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they, they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and... I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And we're not sure why she didn't realize it was Jesus. could have been because of the darkness and the hour of the day. It could have been probably more likely that he is in his resurrected form. He had been brutally beaten and marred, and now he is radiant. Now he is in his resurrected body. He is cleansed. He is pure. He probably has a, a hood upon his head, uh, probably much like the angels were dressed. And she is weeping and crying and does not recognize him. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him well, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus says to her, Mary. He calls her by name. He says, Mary. In verse 15, before that, excuse me, I skipped that. It said, Woman, he said, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Thinking of Revelation 21:14, that there will be no more crying. There will be no more mourning. 
There will be no more pain. Jesus has now been resurrected. He is alive. No more to die. And he says, who is it you are looking for? Who are you looking for? That's a good question for us today. Who is it that you are looking for? What is it that you are searching for? And of course, she thinks he's the gardener. And Jesus says to her, Mary, calls her by name, just as he calls us by name to come and to follow him and come into relationship with him. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me. I have not yet returned to the Father." wasn't that she couldn't touch him. We know that Thomas later on touches him, but he basically says this, quit clinging on to me. Quit dragging me. Let go. I'm here. And I have arrived. I have been resurrected. He says, go instead and tell my brothers, I am returning to the Father, your Father, to my God, your God. Go and let them know that I'm alive, that I have returned that I am going to be with the Father. And Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that He had said these things to her. And on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, then the doors were locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and He stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Common expression given in those times, peace. Uh, in the Hebrew it would be shalom. Peace be with you. Don't worry, I am here. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. I am going to send you out. We know the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, uh, in 19 and 20, as he sends out those who are followers of him to share this news of the resurrection. Resurrection. The risen Savior continues here and he says this. And with this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that what's occurring here, the breath we know is symbolic of the Spirit. And he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that at this point, faith has come upon the disciples and they are granted salvation. They are granted the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the power in its fullness would come later on at Pentecost in the book of Acts. But at this point, salvation in the modern term has been granted. Jesus told them that you will be given the Holy Spirit, and now we see the salvation of the Spirit is upon them. And later on, we will see it come in fullness and in power in the book of Acts. But if you forgive any one of your sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the same term used in Matthew chapter 16 and in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus said, whatever is bound here on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed here will be loosed in heaven. He is saying, share this word. And anyone who hears this as you proclaim the power, as you proclaim the word, they can come into repentance. But if they don't come under this word, under this gospel... They will not be forgiven. Now Thomas Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hands in the side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. And see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. 
Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. What else do you need to see? It's interesting. Uh, Elizabeth Vargas, who works for 2020 and was doing one of the, uh, the um, documentaries, I say documentary, she did a, a piece called The Resurrection, Searching for Answers, and it asked, what really happened after Jesus' crucifixion? Now, virtually every credible historian will admit the fact that Jesus was alive, that He dwelt here upon earth, that He was crucified, and that He was placed in a tomb. That's pretty much a given. Now, there are some offbeat, uh, trying-to-make-money guys who aren't really regarded as historians nor scholars who are trying to make a case that Jesus never existed. But if you go down that road, you really can't say that anybody existed. If you use uh, the historical information they've had, and then, then we would have no history at all. So virtually every scholar and historian will admit that Jesus lived. And as she did this uh, this, these interviews, uh, she did an interview with BeliefNet, and this is what she said, I didn't know that for centuries historians could actually verify that there was really a dramatic change in the disciples' behavior, and nobody could really explain it. And nobody did argue that the tomb was full. They all agreed that the tomb was empty, even the non-believers of that day. I found the whole discussion, especially with people who believed the resurrection was physical, fascinating. Certainly the gospel stories, especially the later gospels, go to great lengths to emphasize Jesus' physical presence, his eating of food, doubting Thomas, put your fingers into my side and touch me. When she was asked about those who believed Jesus' resurrection was only spiritual and not physical, she said, the question I asked was, well, wait a minute. If it was a spiritual resurrection, where did the body go? Because the tomb was still empty. Now, this was a secular source. And it's interesting that people have come up with some pretty elaborate theories, false may they be, to try to explain what could have happened after the crucifixion. Well, the first they come up with is the swoon theory. And this was a fairly popular theory, and it was the belief that the body of Christ, uh, after it had been beaten, after nails were driven through Jesus' hand and feet, after a spear was thrust into his side by professional Roman executioners, that um, he was wrapped in the linen, he was wrapped in grave clothes, placed in a grave, and a tomb was, which sealed it, which probably made the air pretty, uh, pretty unbreathable to an extent. After that period of time, he was in there for a couple of days, he, he got better. And he was able to muster the strength up to get up and push that stone out and get away. And just through the miracle of a damp cave, uh, he was able to get better and get out. Well, I mean, what are the odds that anybody could be brutally beaten a minimum of 39 times in which some people actually died? And by the way, they beat Jesus more than 39 times. That's what you were beaten if you were a Roman citizen. If you were non-Roman citizens, they could just beat you as much as they wanted to, a Roman to a Jew. A Jew would only beat a Jew 39 times, and Romans would only be beat 39 times. But since it was a Roman beating a Jew, uh, in all probability, it was much more than 39 times. He's so beaten that he can't carry his own cross. But then he gets to the cross, and he has nails driven through his hands and his feet. He hangs on a cross for six hours, and then he has a spear thrust into his side. 
I mean, how realistic is, is it that he was able to walk out of there? Not very realistic. Secondly, sometimes there's this theory that people will give. It's the theory of hallucination. Matter of fact, when uh, I was uh, at a debate with William Lane Craig, there was a professor of philosophy from the University of Houston, and he argued this, that simply all those who think they witnessed this and saw Jesus, they were all hallucinating. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were over 500, but there was mass hallucination. All these people simply had a big hallucination. And this is before the time of LSD. They all had this big hallucination. And they simply think they are seeing it. But even psychologists say, you know, it's not likely that uh, more than a few, and certainly not more than a hundred, would have massive hallucination. There's the impersonation theory that somehow everybody got fooled. The Romans got fooled. It was actually somebody else up there. It was Judas. There's one religion that believes it was Judas. The crowd who all yelled, crucify him. The disciples who ran for their lives thought it. And even his mother thought it was somebody else. He was in person. Let me ask you this. You had a son that you had raised. Do you really think somebody else could impersonate him? That is not a good theory. And, and, and even then, they could have simply produced the impersonated body, but they never could. The unknown tomb, and this is a theory that's gained a lot of attention the last ten years, that he was placed in another tomb and they simply couldn't find. You know what? We messed up. With, they put him in another tomb and we just couldn't find the man. We don't know where he is. Now, take into account that the Romans specifically are on guard and they make sure that Jesus is placed in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea who spent good money for this tomb and, and certainly knew where it was. And the disciples certainly saw where it was. They all forgot. And they just can't figure out, oh, he's out here somewhere. I know he's in here somewhere. And then we got some bozo who comes up with his claims. I think I found Jesus' body, uh, his bones here a few years ago. Well, think about it. The Jews would have done anything to discredit the Roman Empire, the disciples. Everybody was looking for the body. I mean, there's not that many tombs in there. So that one doesn't hold any weight. And then, and then the last one that sometimes we hear is the theft theory, that the disciples broke through the, the Roman guards whom, incidentally, if they had allowed that happen, would have died a brutal death. Also, anybody who would have attempted, because it had a Roman seal upon it, would have been crucified themselves. So there's little, uh, if any, validity to any of these, <clears throat> not to mention that we see the disciples completely transformed. If this was a lie, do you really think they would have died, most of them, a martyr's death for a lie? I tell you what, you may die for the truth, but the chances that you'll die for a lie or a hoax are pretty much zero. So if that's true, what are the reasons that we should believe in the death and the resurrection of Christ? Well, let me give you 12. And I gave you some last year, and this list will be found outside at the welcome desk if you want these 12, but let me give them to you. First of all, the public execution by Roman soldiers assured his death. <clears throat> Again, they were professionals. This is what they did for a living. Probably on a weekly basis, they were crucifying people. And before they would take them down, they would make certain they were dead. And for Jesus especially, there has been a spear thrust in his side. So the Romans, who were responsible, certainly believed that he had died. Number two, Roman officials sealed the tomb. 
As I stated earlier, there was probably a wax that sealed the tomb and a cord uh, that by punishment of death, of crucifixion, if anyone attempts to tamper with this, not to mention there are four guards there that are guarding the tomb. Number three, the grave was found empty uh, in spite of those guards. Some kind of miraculous happening occurred and the earth shook and the stone rolled away and the, the, the soldiers don't even really understand what's happened. But again, it would have cost them their lives. Number four, eyewitnesses claim to have seen Jesus after. And matter of fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people. Total transformation of the apostles. You've got men who are running in fear after Judas has turned Christ in. You've got Peter who's denied him three times and we can't find them. They're hiding at this point when Mary comes because they're afraid the Jews are going to come get them and arrest them or, or maybe do something else. So they are hiding. But we see a total transformation to the point that they are willing to give their lives. We see them publicly testifying in the book of Acts of their faith and of the truth of this resurrection. Where up to this point, uh, after Jesus has been arrested, they, Peter himself, who's a leader, won't even admit that he even knows him. So we see a total transformation to the point of death, which also there are others who die a martyr's death, witnesses who die a martyr's death for their claims. Uh, we know that Stephen, the first martyr, dies, and literally hundreds more will give of their life. We also know it's prophesied in the Old Testament. We stated earlier in uh, Isaiah 53 and in Psalms 16. A transformation of both Saul and James, the brother of Jesus. Saul, or as we know in Paul, his whole purpose was what? To exterminate Christianity. To make sure he believed as a Jew and as a high-ranking Jewish official that it was a sect, it was a cult, and he wanted to stomp it out. And he was doing whatever he could to stomp it out. And then we see this radical conversion. He goes from trying to exterminate the faith to being possibly the greatest evangelist of the faith in writing a large portion of the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, who had not believed while Jesus was preaching and with his mother had, had probably tried to get him to get off the road, so to speak. But after the resurrection, we see a radical conversion of James to the point that he dies for his faith, that he becomes the first bishop of Jerusalem and one of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem and of the council of Jerusalem. So we see tremendous transformation. We see recorded evidences by diverse sources. Of course, we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we see a secular historian, Tacitus, who speaks of Christ and of his claims. We see Josephus, Africanus, who, who quotes Thallus, saying that uh, there must have been some kind of eclipse uh, during the day of resurrection because of the darkness that came about. And, uh, but, but he said that's totally, we, we don't get that because of where the moon was. It's not even possible that that could have occurred at that time. But yet we have these other uh, extra-biblical sources that speak of Christ, speak of His death, and speak of how He was here. And something happened. Something happened that changed the followers forever. Then we see the day of worship for the Jewish believer changed. And that's huge. 
That's just significant. I was speaking to a, a rabbi here locally, and I asked him today, I said, what, tell me kind of what defines as a Jew. He said, first of all, that we believe in Yahweh God. And number two, the big one, is that we keep the Sabbath. I mean, those are principal issues. First of all, you believe in God, and then that you believe in the Sabbath. Well, here they are believing that Jesus is God and then changing the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday because it was the day of resurrection. The transformation of those who trust Him today. Those who uh, were lost, those who were far from God and come to Him and have their lives transformed. There are people in this room right now who were drug addicts, but through the power of Christ have been released. There are people in this room today who have been alcoholics, but through the power and the transformation of Jesus Christ today are sober. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of an atheist or an agnostic when somebody converts to atheism or agnostic and says, you know... I was an alcoholic, but now I'm an atheist, and I've been able to whip that. I was an agnostic, but I, w I was just, you know, somebody, and that's, I proclaimed and became an agnostic, and God put my marriage back together. <laughs> and God allowed me to, or, or not God, excuse me, I, I was through the power of agnosticism, of atheism, now I'm sober. Have you ever heard a testimony like that? No, and you probably never will. But it's the transforming power of Jesus Christ. A message that changed the world. In that culture, in that day, we see a dramatic shift, a dramatic change. We see the sanctity of life. We see in Galatians when Paul states, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither male nor female, there's neither, Greek, there's neither um, slave nor free men, the equality of mankind. And we see all of a sudden uh, orphanages begin to pop up. We see the first charity hospitals because of Christianity. We see that the, the Roman games and the gladiators, we see because of the influence of Christianity, these begin to dissipate and finally are, are totally put away with under Constantine. We see the remarkable change and transformation that Christianity had on the culture. So the question is this. Do you believe? Do you believe? Are you a believer? These last two points that are given here in the text, it says, Blessed are those who have seen, have not seen, and yet believe. Now, we have not seen today Jesus physically, but we know of His Word, and we have seen what He has done in the lives of others and what He can do in our lives. And Jesus said, Blessed is He who has not seen and yet has believed. And then in verse 31, let's start with verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you may have life in His name. It is written, it is shared, it is given to you so that you might have life life. What about you, my friend, this morning? Are you a believer? Then praise God. What are you doing with it? Number two, are you seeking? If you're seeking truth, I believe that good evidence has been shared this morning on why you should believe, not only in the death, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you a doubter? What will you do with these claims? On that card right there, I encourage you to look at it again. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I'm ready. I feel like God has spoken to me today. I feel like I've heard and, and, and I, I receive. I'm ready to accept Christ. 
Maybe you've never been baptized. I want to encourage you to follow through with baptism. Maybe you need to join the church or begin to serve and take that next step. Whatever God is leading you to do. I want to close with this story. A few, few months ago, a lady called me. Or actually, I called her. I was trying to get a hold of her husband because I had read a card and it said something of the nature that uh, he was from another faith background. And turned out, she goes, well, actually, that's not right. But um, she goes, I would probably be the one that you want to talk to because I don't really believe. I don't really have a faith. And I said, really? Well, tell me about that. She goes, well, I just have a hard time believing all that stuff. And, I mean, I've read things and I, I, I just, I mean, how do you know the Bible's true? How do you know that who Jesus really is, I mean, how can you prove any of that? I just have a hard time buying any of that. And I come every once in a while with my husband, but I, I'm, I don't really buy into anything you're, you're teaching or saying. And uh, she goes, I, I would be willing to read. And it's, it's interesting you, you're calling me because yesterday my husband was telling me, he said, you know what, why don't you go up and see our pastor and ask him some of these questions you have. And here you are calling. It's kind of ironic. I said, yeah, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? And so we visited for a little bit. I gave her a couple of books that she could read. And I could tell that she was uh, pretty much an intellectual and was really uh, wanting, wanting to know, but very guarded. And so she came up, and it was on a Wednesday night. We were having a service up here, and we began to visit for a while. And I had an, another lady in there with me so that I wouldn't have to meet alone with her. And uh, this other lady had just come off radical uh, surgery from cancer. And a young mom about her age, she was 31, 32, and, and, um, and so I began to try to answer her questions the best I could, gave her some different resources to read. She uh, promised to read those, and we talked for a while. Uh, she explained to me how she felt like she was really different than everybody else and just didn't really fit in and didn't even know why she was even bothering to do this, but that she would be willing to read and consider. And so I left after a while and came on into the, the service we were having in here, and uh, that, that young mom continued to talk with her. And that young mom was just a few days off of radical surgery that she had had for the cancer. Matter of fact, it had been kind of touch and go for her for a little bit. And uh, so she was still going through treatment and still had some of the remnant effects and, and drains from that experience she had just had a, a few days earlier. Well, that kind of released part of the guard for Darlene, which is the name of the, the girl who was uh, seeking and who was asking the questions and who didn't, quite frankly, tell me, I just don't believe. And so they met for a while, and, and then they began, really not unknown to, unknown to me, they began to meet and, and began to do little play groups because they both had young children and, and just visit and, and struck up a friendship. And, uh, and Darlene began to read and <clears throat> began to seek, uh, and uh, her husband and I talked every once in a while and said, man, I'm just glad she's even reading. Just keep praying. And a uh, matter of fact, he had told me, he shared with me later, he said, you know, uh, we would, uh, I would have prayer times with our younger children and, and read to them. And she said, that's fine. I don't agree with it, but that's what you want to you do. You do it, but I'm not going to be a part of that. And so <clears throat> after a while, um, she, she began to honestly seek and read and study and uh, continue to, to come to church every once in a while. And, and, uh, and then she came down with shingles. And while she had shingles, she, she kind of cried out. And uh, she said, God, I believe. Would you please just take this away? And she said, you know, within that day, I, I began to feel a, a relief. And she said it was kind of the beginning. I began to recover. And I realized during that time that God was real. And I felt like I, I could believe that he was really speaking to me and that truth had really been given to me. And after a while, I said, okay, God, I, I believe. 
And then uh, two weeks ago, when we were showing the baptism video, she checked on her card and she checked on there, I, I want to be baptized. I called her up and said, Darlene, uh, you want to be baptized? She goes, yeah, I want to be baptized. I said, tell me why. And she goes, well, I, I, I believe. I said, well, tell me about that process. And she shared what she just shared with me. And when she got to the part where, where she had the shingles, she cried. She began to cry. And this is a woman who's been so guarded and, and I, I couldn't hardly get a smile at her up to this point. And she just begins to break down and cry. And she goes, I know Jesus is real. She goes, I am ready. I, I am committing my life to him. It's real. And so next Sunday, right here, there's a baptistry under here, some of you don't know, after the 1130 service, Darlene, along with several others, will be baptized. And I asked her husband this week, I said, did I get this story all right? He said, yeah, you just missed one part. Here's one part. He said, you know that, that girl that had cancer that had just been through the radical surgery? He said, you know, that really kind of broke her down because she saw that that lady had life and faith in the midst of of what looked like death to us. And he said that kind of broke that barrier down to where she was willing to listen. And she kept wondering, why does this girl have a faith? Why has she experienced peace even in the midst of cancer? She goes, it kind of broke that wall down. It made her really seek. Isn't it interesting how here's something that we think brings about death. Her name is April. April felt like you know, this is a disease that's come upon me. And it looks like there's nothing that come out of it. And God took what looked like death to man and brought life to someone who didn't believe. Matter of fact, they were sitting in the earlier service together here this morning. From death to life. From skeptic to believer. Hey, that's the God I serve. That's the risen and resurrected Savior. What about you? Will you accept Him today? Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never really accepted Christ. You've never really transferred your trust from anything else where you say, God, I not only believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that He lived on earth, that He was crucified, that He died, but I believe that three days later He rose again and that He has the power to forgive my sins. And I trust Him and, and, and expect Him to forgive me my sins and give me salvation and give me heaven one day. I, I believe that, and I put my faith today. I can't, maybe can't answer every question or understand every detail, but I believe. Forgive me, and I put my trust only in Jesus Christ alone and, and believe that He can save me and ask Him to forgive me. If you've never done that, I invite you to pray in your heart right now and make that commitment. Trust the risen and resurrected Lord who can take death and turn it into life. What about you? Maybe you've never been baptized. Hey, that's the symbol that Jesus asked us to do. It's the first thing that we should do once we become believers. Just as I wear a wedding ring this morning that symbolizes my commitment to my wife, so is that our commitment to Christ. Maybe you've never... Uh, become a part of a church, I invite you to either join us or join the church that God has placed you in and begin to serve and to make an impact. Whatever God leads, I invite you to do this morning.